Harvard Divinity School. World Christianity, Christianity in the West, Continuities and Differences, April 18th, 2023. Uh, good evening, everybody from the Harvard Divinity School campus in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So as Frank said, my name is um, David Hempton, and I'm honored and very pleased to welcome you to our first ever Yang Scholars event in World Christianity here at Harvard Divinity School. Um, over a decade ago, I was invited to write the fifth volume for a new seven volume history of Christianity. And the aim of this series published by Taurus was to replace the old Pelican history of the church. And the volume I was replacing uh, was by G.R. Craig. I'm sure many of you know the book. It was called The Church in the Age of Reason, 1648 to 1789. So both the title and the boundary dates show the Eurocentricity of this well-written volume. Uh, the first date, 1648, as you know, is a piece of Westphalia, and then 1789, uh, no prizes for guessing the French Revolution. Um, and the Church in the Age of Reason uh, shows that it was really um, a history, an intellectual history of, of the Enlightenment and its impact on Christianity, which is an important subject, but, um, uh, but in a way um, locates the volume at a certain date in the history of scholarship. <clears throat> so my task was to write about the early modern period from the late 17th to the early 19th centuries. I called it the church in the long 18th century. To introduce it, I borrowed a device from one of the great pioneers of scholarship in world Christianity, and I'm sure a name known to many of you here, Andrew Walls, I know was instrumental in the intellectual formation of quite a few on, on this call. And the literary device I chose, which was borrowed from Andrew, was to invent and invite an intergalactic space traveler to visit planet Earth in this period to do research on world Christianity. What would world Christianity look like without any location bias for someone who simply stepped off from another planet? What was immediately obvious to this intergalactic visitor, of course, is that the Euro-American preoccupation of most scholarship on the history of Christianity was not reflected in her experience of traveling around the globe. Seeing Christianity as a world religion, not as a missiological prototype or a purely English-speaking religious tradition, is a vital first step towards understanding its global social salience. As I soon found out, writing a book like that was not easy work, since most scholarship on the history of Christianity is still mostly located within national or denominational traditions. So Christian internationalism is hard to grasp and even harder to write about. Trying to do justice to that um, uh, world Christianity framing was one of the most difficult intellectual projects I ever had to, um, uh, to address. Um, so um, that experience of trying to do justice to the enormous geographical and lived religion diversity of world Christianity persuaded me then that Harvard Divinity School should make this a priority at some stage in its intellectual journey. And that brings me to tonight's event. As you know, the Yang Visiting Scholars and World Christianity Program at HDS was established by Nancy and XD Yang, 
and ran for the first time during the 2021-22 academic year. We're incredibly grateful to the Yangs for their philanthropy and for their interest in this exciting program and for helping us on our way. The Yang Scholars Program brings scholars and world Christianity to Harvard Divinity School for a year, during which the scholars work on their own research, network with others at Harvard University, continue writing their publications, and teach one course to our students during the year. It's such a great pleasure, really a great pleasure, <clears throat> to have all our seven Yang visiting scholars, past, present, and future, with us this evening. So we extend a very special welcome to you all, and thank you for coming to HDS for a year and for joining us for this important evening. My gratitude also goes to Professors Clooney and Alupana for all their efforts and contributions to the program overall and for tonight's event in particular. From their dif different geographical launching pads in Africa and India, these two very distinguished scholars have been stalwart supporters of this program from its outset. We wouldn't be here without them. So this evening, um, Professor Clooney will start us off in a conversation with Dr. Heather Milquis Leto and Dr. Ashok Kumar Mukherla, our current Yang visiting scholars. And after some discussion and further exploration with our other five Yang scholars, Professor Lupina will offer some summarizing and concluding remarks. Finally, my thanks go to our Office for Academic Affairs and in particular to Mr. Marlon Cummings and Mr. Kevin Kimo, who keep our program running and thriving and have set up this event in record time at a very busy time of the year. It is our hope that we will have more events with our scholars who are able to visit and spend time at HDS due to the general support of XD and Nancy Yang. Tonight's question we are exploring together is, quote, world Christianity, Christianity in the West, continuities and differences. So now, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to punt over to Professor Frank Clooney, the Parkman Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology here at HDS, to start us off in our discussion and conversation. So Frank, thank you for hosting this evening's discussion and thank you for all you've done for this program. I, I think it was only a few weeks ago, Karen Grindler Whitaker, who is the genius behind so much of this, and I were on the phone together, imagining how we might do this. And amazingly, what we hoped for and dreamed for has come about. And so we're really happy to be here tonight. My own role in this is simply to uh, moderate and to watch the clock and so forth. But I, I do say that um, over the past 50 years, I've been going back and forth to South Asia any number of times, studying classical Hinduism and the like, but always mingling with and benefiting from contact with uh, Christian communities in Nepal and India and Sri Lanka and developing friendships and learning about old ways that go back as far as the traditions of Thomas the Apostle up to the missionaries of the 16th, 17th century up to burgeoning new communities in India. And I think as a, a comparativist, I'm always very aware of the fact that the similarities across the world in world Christianity are striking and the differences are extremely instructive. And so I think tonight we are privileged to be able to hear 
and learn from the similarities and the differences. So as, as David announced that I'll begin, uh, our two fellows from this year have place of privilege. Um, I'll introduce them uh, one by one. And then um, after they have spoken, our two fellows from last year and our three fellows from next year will go, and then we'll opening things up. So let us begin. So Heather Melquist Leto, uh, our first speaker tonight, is a cultural anthropologist who work attends to the intersections of technology, religion, and kinship in South Korea and the United States. Her ethnographic book manuscript, Holy Infrastructure, draws together religious studies, anthropology, science, and technology studies to demonstrate the co-construction of Christianity and media technology in some of the first transnational multi-site churches in the world. Her research appears in many academic journals, including the Journal of Korean Studies, Religion and Society, and American Religion, and her audio ethnographic research has been featured on the international public radio program, PRI's The World. So we're very honored to have um, Heather Melquist-Leto lead us off. Over to you, Heather. Great, thank you so much, Professor Clooney. Um, I'm going to share screen so that we have something um, perhaps a little interesting to look at while I talk. Um, as he has described, my name is Heather Melquist Leto. I am a cultural anthropologist, but I come to it by way of um, the study of religion. Um, in fact, I started to study anthropology by attending um, Harvard Divinity School as a master's student. And so this is a, bit, a little bit of a homecoming this last year um, for which I'm grateful. Um, being rooted in anthropology during my first research project, I didn't necessarily envision myself as working in world Christianity or really situate my research project within the subfield itself. Um, as many of you might be aware, you know, the history of world Christianity as a scholarly conversation has emerged in part through conversations in mission studies or missiology. Um, and there's a lot of kind of deliberate focus um, on non-Western Christianities um, or Christianities practiced primarily by non-white um, Christians. Um, and that's a way to sort of correct the imbalance in Christian studies that has been so Eurocentric or American-centric. Um, this was uh, kind of not my orientation just coming from anthropology um, and some of the concerns that I had motivating uh, my research. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about how I came to be so interested in world Christianity because I think it it kind of speaks to, um, to what's going on in the field today. Um, so what first interested me in my research was um, really the fairly recent transformation of megachurches into multi-site churches around the world. Um, now, a multi-site church is a single church that meets at multiple locations, and they do this um, often by recording the service in one sanctuary and broadcasting it to what are sometimes called satellite campuses that can be dispersed geographically um, across quite a great distance at times. Um, this is something that was um, that now is quite common, particularly after the pandemic. This probably needs no introduction. Um, but when I began my ethnographic field research in 2011 and 2012, uh, this was a fairly new thing um, in North America, and this was the context that I was most familiar with. 
So I started doing research in this context because I thought that studying how Christians designed and deployed media technologies in this context would help me to answer some of my theoretical questions that I had about technology and religion. Um, at this point, it was a new and controversial thing in America. There was a lot of debate over you know, what are the implications that these technologies would have on the relationship between the pastor and the congregation, for example, um, or how do we think about liturgy and ritual as being achieved across geographic distance like this. Um, so while there were all these kind of questions that were live in North America and I was doing my research, I noticed in a footnote that there was mention of some of the first multi-site churches being in South Korea um, and beginning in the 1980s. Um, and it is based on that footnote that I started to learn Korean language, thinking that someday in the future it might become a second or third project. Um, but because of the generosity of certain grants that I, I won as a graduate student, that is kind of how I uh, became somebody who, who works in South Korea and the Korean diaspora. So it's that that led me to South Korea, but it's an excellent place to study um, Christianity, global Christianity, um, and in my case, religion and technology. These are the three kind of main churches that I um, did my research at, uh, Onuri Church, uh, Sarang Church, and Yoidofo Gospel Church, which is perhaps the most famous because it um, has been known to be the largest um, church in the world for quite some time. At one point, they claimed almost 1 million congregants at just the main location alone, but they have hundreds of campuses spread throughout the world. Um, South Korea is an ex excellent place to study these things. Um, as I said, um, even though Protestant Christianity was a fairly marginal religion in South Korea at the end of the Korean War, um, it grew very rapidly to the point that in the 1980s and 1990s, it was the site of many of the largest churches for several denominations. Um, and so I learned a lot of things about Christianity and megachurch Christianity in particular from doing this research. Perhaps first and foremost, I'm gonna highlight a couple of those things because I think that they're particularly um, definitive of kind of megachurch trends of the last 20 or 30 years. Um, first, I was able to kind of trace empirically um, the influence of South Korean churches on American uh, megachurches in developing these multi-site um, church structures. Um, when I first began my project, I was under the assumption that this was a trend that began in the United States or perhaps Australia, and then was moving throughout the globe because this was the narrative that was being relayed to me not only through the churches, but also in the scholarship that I was reading. Um, but in fact, I was able to kind of highlight the way that not only were American churches not the pioneer of this organizational form, but in certain notable prominent cases, um, they were directly modeling themselves off of South Korean examples. As in the case of Willow Creek Church here, um, uh, I have a picture here of the founding pastor of, of the South Korean church I studied and. Uh, Willow Creek's founding pastor. Um, this was a time in which Willow Creek was beginning to develop their multi-site church and would later become sort of popularly attributed with having pioneered it. Um, another thing that, you know, I was able to trace back was the way that the cell group model of small 
group uh, small Bible study that was so popular in megachurches all over the world in the 1990s and 2000, that this is actually largely attributable to um, the popularization of it through Young E. Cho at Yoidoful Gospel Church. Um, so these were really prominent um, sort of influences that I was able to find that, that um, really cemented for me the importance of, of studying South Korea if we wanna think about evangelical Christianity and um, kind of trends in megachurch Christianity in general. Uh, on the theme of similarity and differences, you know, this is not to say that these are um, kind of carbon copies of one another. Um, perhaps the most significant um, difference that I'll highlight here is that I learned quickly that in South Korea, there's no colloquial term even for multi-site church, even though they um, uh, did so much to sort of develop this model. Uh, throughout the world, they don't actually have a word for it in Korean. Um, typically, they would just call these churches mega churches. Um, and this indicates a number of things about the kind of social and historical context of its development. Um, theologically, from some of the pastors, they would explain this to me as as uh, the as an example of their obedience to God, almost because they developed the multi-site church model um, just kind of by accident. Um, it wasn't a strategy per se, but uh, Onuri Church, for example, was gifted four plots of land at the same time. And so they just decided, well, let's try to do um, church across campuses. Um, this to them is a way of being sort of obedient to God, which is in contrast to uh, an American model of multi-site church, which does rigorous studies trying to figure out the best practices for creating these kind of franchise-like structures. Um, you know, so, um, but socioculturally, you know, there's also the, the fact that South Korean churches um, have a significant uh, diasporic community, right? And they, they wanted to kind of facilitate these bonds across geographic distances, people moved and migrated and returned migrated. So when I returned to the United States to write my dissertation, though, you know, I had to, I was reviewing a lot of the literature in, um, in world Christianity. And the question that came to mind often was, you know, why isn't this, why isn't the influence of South Korean Christianity, I think, uh, better documented um, in studies of Christianity? Why was I reading over and over again um, this sort of narrative implicitly that megachurch trends really began in North America or perhaps Australia or Europe, and then were spread and copied um, in other places in the world, even if they were done so creatively? You know, I think a lot of scholars who were um, who are really celebrating and highlighting the um, significance of megachurches in places like West Africa and and, and East Asia. Um, still do so with the implicit narrative that what is so exceptional is the way that they've creatively adapted what were natively Western um, kind of models and examples. Um, and so one of the things that I've been sort of grappling with and one of the things that I think is quite interesting about world Christianity right now um, is kind of the me methods that are being reflected upon in order to grapple with this um, this kind of challenge within the field. That is, how can we both highlight um, and kind of undo the asymmetry of how we are covering Western and non-Western Christianities without exoticizing 
um, a sense of uh, exoticizing non-whites or non-Western Christianities, right? How do we deploy the category or use the category world Christianity um, in a way that doesn't reify the sense that the normative home of Christianity is in the West? And so that is properly understood to be not world Christianity while world Christianity is elsewhere. Um, so that has sort of become my entry point into world Christianity. Um, and I'm really grateful here to have this opportunity at HDS with the generosity of the Yang family um, to kind of work to develop this. And what I find is um, really exciting, I think, is that even though world Christianity or global Christianity has been, um, is, is already a kind of well-developed subfield, um, there's still so much work to be done. And I think that there's a lot of openness to thinking about what hasn't been done in the field, what kinds of examples haven't been thought about enough, and what new tools can we um, sort of adopt um, in order to kind of theorize and do justice to both the particular and the global at once. Um, and so something that I've really kind of uh, put forward to my graduate students in my seminar at HDS this year is that uh, there's a lot of opportunity and energy and investment uh, in this conversation. And I hope that uh, more people who may not have originally thought themselves a part of it, like myself, um, will find a place for themselves um, and really um, help to make, make their own contributions. So thank you very much. Thank you, Heather, for um, so uh, interestingly and also concisely getting us started. I appreciate very much your presentation. I'm happy now to introduce our second speaker, Ashok Kumar Mocharla uh, from India. He is a visiting professor here this year, as, as Heather is. He is assistant professor of sociology at the Indian Institute of Technology in Indore. The IITs are among the most prestigious institutions in South Asia. His academic interest includes sociology of religion, caste, and Indian Christianity, sociology of faith healing and public health. He is the author of Dalit Christians in South India, Caste Ideology and Lived Religion from Rutledge 2020. He's held visiting positions at in, uh, Drexel University College of Medicine in Philadelphia, uh, the University of Bielefeld in Germany, and his current book project, Desacralizing the Body and Illness, Christianity, Modernity, Missionary Medicine, and Public Health in the Telugu Country, examines how public perceptions of body and illness have been desacralized with the intervention of missionary medicine and Christian modernity in the Telugu-speaking region of South India. So Ashok, we welcome you, grateful for your year here, and I turn things over to you. Thank you so much, Professor Tony, for the kind introduction. And I'm grateful to Harvard Divinity School for this wonderful opportunity. And thank you, Professor uh, David Hampton and the HDS staff in making this uh, event <coughs> possible. So, without wasting much, much of time, <clears throat> let me get to the point. So how do we understand all Christianity from Indian experience? And uh, today, roughly, there are about 32 million Indian Christians uh, living in different parts of uh, Indian states. And the, even an unofficial estimate says that the, that number would be uh, way more than 40 million because there are a lot, lot many Pentecostals who do not officially identify themselves as Christians owing to uh, legal entanglement and other social 
or dynamics associated with each and every region. Having said that, so I would like to talk about two major themes uh, in the light of which we'll be able to understand what world Christianity and what the Indian experience has to offer and to move forward. Uh, when we talk about India, the discussion on caste becomes almost unavoidable and impossible. And the first thing is the caste and Indian Christianity. How do you understand? The advent of Christianity in India, particularly the 19th and 20th century Protestantism, sort of presented an alternative framework of social change for the depressed classes, mostly Dalits, tribes, women, and other backward class. So in that sense, the 19th century Protestantism of India, even though it has its origins in both Europe as well as in uh, America, it was kind of providing an alternative framework of social change for the depressed classes to deal with the caste inequalities and to deal with the day-to-day -reali day realities of caste oppression and other structures of inequality. So as a result of that, what happened in 1860s to 1920 was what the missionaries of then called the mass movements to Christianity. So the mass movements to Christianity was a time frame where many people, particularly communities, converted to Christianity in groups, not as an individual. And another important aspect of mass movements to Christianity in this time frame was majority of them who converted to Christianity were coming from the lower caste and the depressed communities. And in terms of the ideology, all of them who converted to Christianity from 1860 to 1920s, what of the view that Christianity, they viewed Christianity as an escape route from the caste discrimination. Meaning thereby, the Protestant, Protestantism of the 19th and 20th century in India presented itself an alternative framework to what a prominent Indian anthropologist M.N. Singh was called the Sanskritization. The Sanskritization was a dominant paradigm of social change. It is a kind of process of cultural change towards the twice-born communities. If you are anybody is familiar with the caste system, so you have four major hierarchies in the caste system, whereby the Sanskritization is, is nothing but a process where lower caste try to imitate the lifestyles and ritual practices of the twice-born in an attempt to raise their social status. So theoretically, Sanskritization only allows positional change from one state, one particular caste status to that of another one. But theoretically, it doesn't allow any, sort, any kind of structural changes. But Christianity as a framework, going beyond this Sanskritization, provided the lower caste and the depressed communities with an alternative ideas, practices, symbols, and a worldview to contest the structures of caste inequality from 1860s to 1920. As a result of that, today, we have an overwhelming majority of Indian Christians coming from the lower caste background. So, as a result of that, depressed class of India moved away from being mere spectators or participants of a previous faith to that of being ambassadors of a new faith that is Christianity. 
The second theme I would like to talk about is the public health and gender and Indian Christianity. By 1930s, there were about roughly 176 mission hospitals operating in India of both large scale and small scale, particularly catering to the needs of women, children, lepers, insane, TB patients, and so forth. So they, there were also, it was organized on different lines. You have the missionary societies from the British uh, land, particularly the Dufferin Fund and the Janana missionary societies. And you also have missionary society, women's missionary societies, mostly funded by the American Evangelical Lutheran churches, particularly Lutherans. So the different, the Dufferin Fund was created by the Queen Victoria to provide health services to Indian women. And their primary motive was to educate the Indian women and to make them doctors, medical assistants, nurses, and midwives. It also operated various dispensaries across the Indian subcontinent. On the other hand, you have the mission hospitals of small and large scale, primarily catering to the needs of the women and children, because the traditional cultural structures and the practices prohibited male doctors to even have a basic physical contact with the women patients. Consequently, women and the children were largely left at the mercy of the untrained midwives and leading to so many pre and postnatal deaths and you know, child mortality rates. Even it was reported in the Pune province the child mortality rate in Pranav province in 1920s was 10 times higher than the United Kingdom. So that was the seriousness of uh, the medical situation that women and the children were going on, uh, experiencing. So in that sense, the current project that I'm trying to look at was a kind of a pioneering attempt by a pioneering women medical missionary who traveled all the way from Philadelphia to a small town in the Telugu-speaking region of Madras presidency in the 19th century and established a hospital uh, to serve the women and children. So this project analyzes how a pioneering woman missionary fundamentally transformed the gender relations in the field of medicine by establishing hospitals, nursing colleges, and medical colleges for the women. And it sort of, in a way, it breaks down the cultural barriers and to democratize the medical knowledge as well as education in favor of the women and the lower caste. So from these two major themes, you have about roughly 176 medical missions. And prior to that, you have a sizable number of people, close to 30 million people convert into Christianity on the grounds that Christianity is an alternative route to escape the caste discrimination. So in that sense, the essence of all Christianity being that human beings are equal in the sight of God has been an integral part of Indian Indians who dealt with the most compelling social challenges in the past, including the freedom struggle and their ongoing journey today. So as Dana Robert observes, the strength of all Christianity lies in its creative interwoving of the web of a world religion with the oof of its local context. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ashok, um, for opening up so many more questions. I'd like to think that 
as we go along, we're accumulating um, unique insights. So first Heather and now Ashok opening up questions and possibilities uh, for discussion later on. So having heard uh, two uh, more ample presentations from our young fellows of this year, we now will have um, five shorter presentations by our past fellows and our coming fellows, giving them the impossible task of taking very complicated material and, and speaking about it in, in only five minutes or so. So we're sympathetic with them in advance and all that they will be challenged to, to do. I'll introduce um, them one by one. We'll have, uh, first of all, last year's fellows who graciously brought so much to our community in their, in their time with us, beginning with Chandra Mullampalli. So Chandra Mullampalli holds the Fletcher Jones Foundation Chair at Westmont College, and he is a professor of South Asian history. His recent and very well admired and received book, South Asia's Christians Between Hindu and Muslim from Oxford University Press, explores the deep history of interaction between Christians, Hindus, and Muslims in South Asia. His current project explores the capacity of religion to foster cosmopolitanism, especially among South Asian diasporic communities. So Chandra, over to you and welcome back. Thanks so much, Professor Clooney. And thank you, uh, Dr. Heather Nalquist-Leto and Ashok Mochrela. Really great to meet you. And I think you're gonna have, uh, I think then it must've been an exciting year for you here at Harvard as it was for me. I don't have uh, that much to say and I only have five minutes. So I'm just gonna play off of uh, what each of you has said, riff a little bit. The first uh, issue that jumps out at me as I listen to Dr. Leto relates to the issue of difference. Um, the very field of world or global Christianity is predicated on a certain type of difference of, of the non-West from the West and of uh, these expressions of Christianity in Africa and Asia, that uh, there, is, there is agency and there is a role for what came before in, in the, the ways that Christianity is expressed. And it seemed as, as I was listening to the relationship between megachurches and the satellites, that um, there is an, a more, more of a capacity to identify the similarities, the identification, the common identity that's shared between the satellites and the megachurch. That seems to break down when we look at the Christianities across the ocean, that there is a type of um, a difference that uh, is hard to grapple with. I remember reading something from the Africanist Paul Landau, who basically contended that it's very difficult to recognize African Christianity as a common religion to what is practiced in America. And so I continue to, to ponder that as I look um, at the different expressions of Christianity around the world. What is the glue? And does belonging to a common religion presume that there is some kind of solidarity, some sort of cooperation uh, that exists between uh, the traditions across the world? Uh, what's the affinity? The other uh, questions that come to mind is I think of the corporateness of some of these entities in South Korea or um, other mega churches around the world relates to the issue of, uh, of capitalism, uh, of global wealth 
and uh, these are issues that are taken up in earlier work is uh, our mega churches an expression of the American gospel being exported abroad and the impact of, of broadcasting. Uh, and I think, um, Heather, I think you've pushed back on that very effectively in describing the reverse influence that, that's taking place. So I certainly appreciated that. Relating to uh, Dr. Mosherla, uh, I appreciated your emphasis on the emancipatory impact of Christianity in the Indian context, but it only reinforces the sense that global Christianity or world Christianity is becoming increasingly the religion of the global poor. And as such, it's not always easy to recognize the forms and the structures and the theologies as sharing any common, uh, common basis for what came before in America or in Europe. I don't know that these Dalit converts are reading Karl Barth's dogmatics or, um, or any of the other uh, aspects of the corpus of um, a theological education elsewhere. So what is the cultural material out of which uh, the poor express and articulate their Christian devotion? And in what ways do we recognize them as sharing a common thread with Christianity in the West? I think that's the task of um, the study of world Christianity is to really listen, listen carefully to the ground, um, understand subaltern experiences and the different ways that they're formulated. So I'll leave it at that. Hmm. Uh, thank you, Chandra. Um, being marvelously succinct, everybody's being so succinct tonight, which will leave us plenty of time later on to amplify and have back and forth among the speakers and all of us who are listening in. But thank you for picking up on the on the two presentations made already, and then bringing out some of these aspects, which um, I think will give us a lot to talk about. Our second speaker from last year um, is uh, Dr. Oluwakemi Abiodun Adesina, who is Associate Professor of History at Redeemers University in Ede, Osun State in Nigeria. Uh, Kemi, as she is popularly known, is currently the editor of Jenda, a journal of culture and African women's studies. She has published in local and international journals and books. She is currently working on a book manuscript entitled Youth and Pentecostalism in Nigeria. So, Kami, over to you, and welcome back. And thank you for coming from a different time zone to be with us tonight. Thank you very much, Professor Clooney. Um, it's a pleasure seeing you again, Chandra. Um, Arthur, it's a pleasure meeting you and um, Ashok. Um, well, I... For this um, presentation, I've actually looked at um, the future of global Christianity, but I am going to lay emphasis on the place of Nigerian youths in the future of um, global Christianity. Um, Nigeria is a great player in global Christianity, particularly um, within the scope of um, reverse mission. And um, the youth in Nigeria are actually play, playing a great role in Christianity, in world Christianity. Um, from my studies, the role of youth, particularly in the future of global Christianity, 
cannot be overemphasized. Um, the youths are the future of the church and they play significant roles in the growth and development of the church. Um, from my research, we carried out um, a study through Google Form. And um, like Ether rightly said, um, technology is a very important feature of world Christianity, which the youths use a lot, particularly through the various social media platforms. And um, they have been able to impact on global Christianity through um, those platforms. They have used those platforms for evangelism, um, where they have shared their faith through those platforms. And this has led to the growth of church in Nigeria and even um, in other parts of the world. Um, they have brought unique styles of worship to the Christian community. Um, the Nigerian youths have also brought, um, they have also been passionate about mission works. And this, have, this has made um, significant impact on global missions. Um, they have also um, engaged with social justice in global Christianity, as they have tried to be advocates of social justice issues such as inequality, poverty, and corruption. An interesting trend um, that I noticed is a reawakening which was born out of some kind of comparative analysis between modern day societies and cultural societies. And what they've concluded, this, um, this youth that I refer to, are that um, culture, their cultural beliefs do not mesh well with what is available today. Um, they believe that there's, um, I believe that there's a clash of ideals and um, they have some identity crisis, the youths that I refer to. They are no longer satisfied with the provisions of institutions of Western civilization and such civilization that I refer to here are democracy, legal institutions, because they feel they can't see the church as a champion of social justice. For them, it has become a breeding ground of social injustices that has decimated wider society. Um, I'm sure this is going to be controversial, but um, that is my observation from my field trip, that um, these young people feel that um, what society stood for before Christianity, they feel it's more ideal than what they find in Christian faith now. Because now they go to churches, they find people who have been accused of embezzling funds being celebrated. Meanwhile, in 
traditional societies either too, such people would have been condemned by society and they won't be able to um to they, they won't be respected in society um i'll leave it at this point because i think i've overspent my five minutes thank you okay <clears throat> thank you kami and um you are raising some controversial points that we can return to later so everyone make a mental note and we can come back to your questions about the pre-christian and the christian era and is it better is it progress or how these things go so that's very interesting thank you so much so now we turn to our um the future uh, our three young scholars who will be with us next year and i'll in the same way introduce them one by one and i would ask them perhaps um, just as a teaser to attract interest for next year to tell us also in a sentence or two and you can take an extra minute or whatever you need to do this what you what you intend to be working on while here next year so i think that will be a bonus that we begin to anticipate where we'll be in the fall so i'll begin with uh, thomas santa maria tom recently finished his phd in renaissance studies and history he is currently the interim dean of silliman college at yale he is working on co-editing a book on Catholic Global Missions and the Emotions in the Early Modern World. His first monograph project is also uh, coming forth, or is, is well underway, on the role of the body in Catholic devotional life. So Tom, over to you, and you can um, respond and tell us about what we can expect from you next year. Thank you so much, Father Clooney, and uh, thanks, of course, to the generosity of the Young family that makes this possible. And uh, to Harvard Divinity for bringing this uh, interesting evening of conversation, uh, which no doubt uh, will continue in future with uh, young scholars, past, present, and even more future uh, as, as we move forward. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about the projects that I, I want to work on and tie them in with some of the themes that I'm already hearing. You know, world Christianity, uh, there's this a uh, phrase that um, Tony Grafton used at a lecture uh, last year that haunts me uh, when thinking about world Christianity, because he said, um, it's really hard to do one thing well, let alone two or three or more. And of course, if you're working in world Christianity, uh, you're working in two or three or more uh, things at once, which does make it um, quite a challenge. Now, you know, I know that one thing we're thinking about in Christianity, I work mostly in, in Catholicism or Catholic Christianity is, you know, who are uh, Catholics today or who are Christians today? This is, you know, a question I think we all see all the time um, in relation to, you know, American politics. People want to know. Well, it's a question whose origins uh, reach back quite far into early modernity, which uh, is what I work on and, and missions. And increasingly, as, as we've all mentioned, uh, we're trying to move away from a Eurocentric model of thinking about those missions and therefore whatever whatever global Catholicism or global Christianity is. And, uh, you know, one thing that I think I'm proposing to start addressing that problem as we try to move away from the European voices and think more of the subaltern voices is sort of a new theme. Um, a lot of what we work on now is conversion. Um, what I think I want to research more is apostasy. 
Um, as it turns out, you know, one uh, person's trash is another person's treasure. Well, in a similar way, one person's convert is another person's apostate. And uh, it's kind of seems to me an, an interesting take because uh, one thing that happens in these moments of cross-cultural contact uh, between Europeans and other peoples is that uh, Europeans uh, as frequently as they convert people, or at least to some degree, uh, also uh, apostatize and leave either religious life or even Christianity or Catholicism altogether. So it strikes me that, you know, if it's hard to do a lot of things well, maybe focusing on a theme uh, across uh, geographies might be a good way. And, and that seems like an interesting theme. And then the only other thing I was uh, that I was gonna raise is something of a response to um, Heather's presentation on multi-site churches is that, uh, you know, before technology, there was also the supernatural. So another thing that I'm gonna be working on next year uh, is bilocating nuns. And, uh, you know, these missionary nuns from Europe who managed uh, by certain accounts and by certain attestation to be in multiple places at once um, as part of their missionary efforts. And it also actually does bring in uh, to Ashok's uh, question, um, the point about social change. Um, you know, one of the things that happened uh, following the Council of Trent was, uh, you know, when it concluded in 1563, was this decision to um, keep nuns cloistered in convents. Well, uh, it's pretty amazing if you have bilocating nuns, just how far from the convents they're getting and speaks to uh, the ways that uh, Catholicism in this period was uh, grappling with uh, social change. So I think I'm gonna keep it brief in there by talking about uh, how some of the things I'm working on relate to some of the themes uh, that have already been raised. Mm. Okay. Um, I never thought we'd get to bilocating nuns tonight. So that's a, another treat down the road. Um, I did some work on uh, Constantine Beshi, the Jesuit missionary 18th century South India who's inspired in part by Maria of Agreda, the Spanish nun who wrote a Life of the Virgin Mary based on discussing things with the Virgin Mary. But there are all these stories about uh, Maria of Agreda uh, being, having apparitions in the Southwest of what is now the United States and, and going back and forth and all that. So, so bringing this kind of um, unusual angle into the discussion um, will be fascinating. So it'd be fun to find if there are other parallels of things that one might find either implausible or perhaps um, out of the ordinary that we find by turning to different cultural contexts and also how people in other parts of the world might look at the United States and say, well, that's pretty implausible too, what you are uh, calling or practicing as Christian. So thank you very much, uh, Tom, for, for such a succinct presentation. Everybody's being so good on time. This is quite marvelous. Uh, so I'd like now to turn to Gina Zerlo. Uh, Gina, welcome to um, the area. You're up the, not too far from here already, but welcome down to Cambridge soon. Uh, Gina Zerlo is co-director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, um, up located at the Gordon-Conwell campus, at least temporarily up there on the, the North Shore of the Boston area. Uh, she, um, her work intersects quantitative sociology of religion, gender studies, and world Christianity. 
In 2019, she was named one of the BBC's 100 Most Inspiring and Influential Women in the World for her work in quantifying the religious future. Her latest book is Women in World Christianity, Building and Sustaining a Global Movement, which is out right now in 2023. So Gina, over to you and the screen is yours. Wonderful, can you see my screen share okay? Yes. Great, wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, the benefit of going towards the end is that your mind is just racing with all kinds of things you can talk about. But I wanted to use a little bit of time here to talk statistics, if I can. Uh, my entry point into world Christianity is through quantitative social science. And I wanted to share this very boring line graph, in fact, which is the percent of the world that is Christian from roughly the year 1900 to projections for the year 2050, which shows very little information, which is that around a third of the world has been Christian, is Christian, and is projected to be Christian into the future. Uh, you might think, wow, she only has five minutes and she's spending it on this very flat line. But what this line graph hides is the reality that this shift of Christianity to the global South has happened and is continuing. So if we look at the demographic makeup of Christianity in the year 1900, we see that 82% of all Christians lived in the global North in um, 1900, and only 18% of Christians lived in what the United Nations calls the global South. But today, global Christianity looks like this. This is why we're all here. This is why we study this material in a sense is because 67% of all Christians today live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania, and only 33% of Christians are European, North American. So this discussion of decentering Eurocentrism uh, in the study of Christianity is real because Christianity is shifting. And we anticipate that by the year 2050, 77% of all Christians will live in the global South. And of course, Christianity shifting is not anything new. There have been other shifts in Christianity over the course of Christian history. But I think one of the least acknowledged aspects of Christianity's shift to the global South is that there would be no shift to the South if it weren't for women. And I'm really delighted to hear Ashok and Kemi and Tom talk about gender and women in their research because, um, you know, in the words of Dana Robert in her 2006 article, World Christianity is a Woman's Movement. Um, and so we see that uh, Christianity really is majority female everywhere in the world. And the book that I have coming out uh, in a couple of weeks here talks about the reality of the the queens and mystics and pastor's wives and missionaries and teachers and nurses and Bible women and indigenous evangelists and mothers and widows who help spread the faith and make Christianity the world religion that it is today. And really, if you go to almost any congregation in the world, it's going to be majority female. But one thing that my previous study revealed was a chronic lack of data on gender in world Christianity. And so um, my first round of my Women in World Christianity project talked about 
um, the gender makeup in membership of Christian churches and networks and denominations around the world, which tends to show gender parity. Both men and women tend to both be members of congregations. But when you look at who's participating, it's just off the charts that it's mostly women who are kind of the on the ground workers, whether or not they're in official leadership capacities. Um, so what I'll be doing at HDS in this coming year is getting at more nuanced, more localized participation data for um, gender and world Christianity. So looking at uh, what is the gap between um, men and women's participation and as it comes to leadership, as it comes to private practices, public uh, public practices, importance of religion in your life, some of these standard sociological measures of religiosity, um, really nuancing and investigating the gender gap that exists in world Christianity and trying to fill the data gap that exists in world Christianity as well. So I'm just delighted to join um, all of you at HDS next year. Hmm. Okay, that is... Also fascinating. Thank you so much, Gina. And knowing so much and saying it so succinctly again is a marvelous uh, quality that you show us today. So thanks for that. Um, and then finally, of our visitors uh, for next year, we have Nathaniel Homewood. So welcome, Nathaniel, to joining us tonight. Uh, is lecturer in the Department of Religion at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He received his PhD in religion from Rice in 2018. His first book was entitled Seductive Spirits, Deliverance, Demons, and Sexual Worldmaking in Ghanaian Pentecostalism. And it's going to be published by Stanford University Press early 2024. He's already working on a second book for Bloomsbury Publishing, exploring global Christianity in the city of Houston and a third, I think, long-term project on the global networks of the controversial faith healer, Benny Hinn. So over to you, Nathaniel, to um, complete our tour of the young fellows past, present, and future. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a, a real pleasure and a thrill to be part of this, uh, both the discussion today and also uh, now the, the legacy of the, the young scholarship and, and, and all who have have gone before and who will come after. Uh, so this is a real, a real pleasure. I think what I'm going to share today will build on what Heather was saying, but I came in late. So if I if I'm mischaracterizing anything, I apologize. Um, one of the things that uh, I have become increasingly interested in in world Christianity is the fact that um, it is not a, a here and there, uh, a West and the rest type of field but it is marked by constant interplay uh, of networks uh, between uh, a, a great many places. Uh, and so one of the ways that I'm exploring that is this book that I'm writing now uh, on, on Christianity in Houston, which uh, started as a book on Christianity in Houston and is now really a world Christianity book in Houston, because the reality is that in a city this diverse, uh, the the story of Christianity is varied and incredibly diverse. So we have incredible African churches here. We have all sorts of Orthodox churches here, uh, but also in in the way that Christianity is practiced on a daily uh, level is on a daily basis. 
is a story of world Christianity. So we have uh, quinceañeras that are rooted in, in masses uh, from, uh, and practices from Mexico. Uh, we have uh, sports, which uh, I just finished an interview with uh, Hakim Olajuwon, the great Nigerian Muslim basketball player, who is a big part of the story of Christianity and religion in this city. And so in all these varied ways, you have uh, Christianity uh, in Houston, not a story of American evangelical and or Baptist Christianity, as one might assume, uh, but actually a story of uh, many Christianities from many places flourishing uh, in a place where it is hot and hard to flourish. Um, as far as uh, my thoughts on world Christianity, one is that very fact that I think it is all about thinking through the ways in which networks move throughout the world. Uh, and so um, that's what I'm gonna be working on largely in my year at uh, HDS. I'm, I'm going to be spending it looking at the popular but also controversial faith healer, Benny Hinn, which seems like a weird choice for a world Christianity project because he is in so many ways um, defined by American excess, even though he's not American, uh, was born in Palestine and grew up in, in Canada. Um, and so uh, what I'm doing with Benny Hinn though is considering uh, from the start, his very international audience. So I have attended many Benny Hinn events and uh, have, have gotten to know Benny Hinn uh, closely and uh, attend his Zoom events. And it is remarkable, the international flavor of the, the audience. In fact, uh, the American part of the audience is quite small. So starting from that, I, I was interested in, in what does that mean? And also how has that come about? And so what I'm doing is a multi-site uh, ethnographic project on Benny Hinn, exploring how places uh, other than the US have influenced Benny Hinn and Benny Hinn has influenced people there. It, it came out of early field work where I would be in Zimbabwe and there would be no electricity, but they would turn on the generator to watch Benny Hinn. Uh, or I was in Ghana and the, the prophets there very much were emulating uh, what they had seen from Benny Hinn. But Benny Hinn has also learned much in his traverse around the globe. Uh, and so my hope is to explore the ways in which those travels um, have, have also influenced and shaped what, what he does uh, in his ministry. I wanted to just also finally add that uh, I, I was thrilled to hear conversations already about gender and class uh, as I think they are crucial elements of, of the exploration of world Christianity. But I also hope that race uh, and sexuality play a more prominent role in, in conversations of world Christianity. I think they have uh, played a muted role uh, to date and there is much, much more to be done there. Hmm. Okay, thank you, Nathaniel. Um, so, and thanks then to all our speakers for opening up so many issues in such a succinct fashion, uh, giving us this kind of dizzying tour of the world all at once. Uh, since we're doing so well on time, before opening it up to any 
questions from the audience. If you if others who've been uh, listening in, please do put questions in the chat or comments you'd like us to discuss, or be ready to put up your electric hand in a few minutes to um, raise new questions and so on like that. But let me first just give an opportunity if any of the speakers would like to, everybody has already been adverting to what others have had to say. Would anyone um, from Heather all the way to Nathaniel like to re you know, comment on what others have said or add to what others have said thus far? There's so much that could be talked about, but I give you the first opportunity. Uh, yes, Heather, please. I'm sorry, I'm not going to follow directions. I'm going to add another thing to uh, to the queue, if I may. I just wanted to to mention that um, uh, both in Dr. Adesina's uh, uh, presentation and in Dr. Zerlo's, uh, something that I wonder if either of you can kind of speak to is these the demographic changes and the focus on on youth and how um, you know kind of as demographies shift. Uh, in the coming years, and there are different predictions for that, how that might also affect the way that kind of world Christianity manifests around the globe. Be very fascinated to see more work on on that, or if any of you have comments about that. So I open up, uh, Gina and Kami, would either of you like to take that up about the implications of the demographic, of uh, the age changes and so on? Gina? Yeah, I, I can say a bit about that. So the, the Pew Research Center came out with their uh, age report a few years ago, and they said the average age of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa is 19 years old. That's the average age. So they're some of the youngest Christians in the world, in a region of the world that has had a tremendous growth of Christianity, um, home to many of these mega churches, home to many prominent evangelists, home to a lot of people moving across borders for mission, right? So sub-Saharan Africa is becoming in some ways, the quote unquote center of world Christianity, and yet it's a youth movement. So what are the implications of that? Um, what kind of theological education are these youths receiving, whether formally or informally, to inform um, the kind of work that they're doing and the influence that they have on Christianity? Is it mostly coming from social media? Is it coming from technology? Or is it coming from learned professors somewhere? Probably not. So there are a lot of implications of the youth bulge. Um, and really, that's even one of the reasons why Christianity grew so much in Africa, whereas, yes, a lot of people converted to Christianity in the mid-20th century, and then those families had lots of children, but there was a population boom um, in the mid-20th century that helped contribute to, to the growth of Christianity there as well. So I think um, we do need to think more critically about what the... Um, the, this means that the center of world Christianity is in some ways the youngest as well. Yeah. And, and Gina, just to add before asking Kami if she'd like to say anything, would that mean that with these this incredibly young average age of, of 19, that most of these young people are born into Christian families, they're not converts? Is that is that correct or is that misconstrual? You no, know, I think I think that's probably true. The rate of conversion has dropped off quite a bit um, as the potential pool of converts has gotten much smaller because okay. Muslims don't tend to convert to Christianity. Christians don't really convert to Islam. And most co converts came from traditional African religion. And those communities have gotten smaller and smaller. So okay. we're not seeing the same conversion rate as we did. Okay. 
Fascinating. Kami, would you like to say anything about the youth factor? You mentioned it also. I, I quite agree with Gina. Okay, okay. Um, and, and just do, do either of you know, uh, would this be true, the demographics of Muslims in Africa? They also would be aged rather um, young. Any, any information on that? It's in the Pew report. <laughs> I'd have to, okay. well, I read the me, Christian section more closely. Okay, Sorry. I'll look it up later. Okay. <laughs> so again, other, thank you very much for Heather for getting us started. Other comments on that issue of youth or back and forth among any of you who've spoken thus far about um, how to think about these things? Uh, Chandra. I have to slip out uh, because I have to lecture on the Vietnam War in about three minutes. But I just wanted to say I appreciated all the presentations and uh, the discussion of networks, the discussion of apostasy, the discussion of multi-directionality and counting uh, the numerical growth of Christians. I just am really captivated with this question of how do we constitute a Christian subject outside of the West and uh, what goes into that type of reflection and uh, the need to just adopt new lenses and new capacities to listen to subaltern peoples and the way they formulate their theologies and their convictions and uh, recognizing that they're going to be very different from ours, especially if they're not literate and if they're not uh, um, plugged into global networks of information. So I think our task is immense and I'm really excited about uh, being a part of this conversation with all of you. Thank you, Chandra, and good luck um, teaching the Vietnam War in an hour's class. So that's um, right. another heroic deed you'll take on yourself. Um, before opening it up, I, I would pose a question. So, so I mentioned earlier that I've been going back and forth to South Asia for 50 years now. And my concern is always, my interest has always been about the Hinduism and the Buddhism in South Asia, thinking about those religious traditions and then in a way, uh, looking at the Christian communities, particularly in India and particularly in South India, in light of what I know about the Hindu communities. And I'm wondering, very few of you mentioned anything much about uh, the engagement with Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism. Ashok, you certainly talked about the caste issues and the like. Would anyone like to say any more about the, you know, the, your expertise area, how there is a do we learn something? You know, we, we're so concerned about pluralism, religious diversity in, in North America, United States today, Cambridge, Massachusetts today. Do the situations that you study tell us something about how to think about interreligious relationships that the Christianities of the world and the South should or could change the way we in places like North America, East Coast, think about pluralism? Anybody able to think off the top of their head about a topic like that? I, I, I do, if you don't mind. Please, Jamie, yeah, sure. So one, one of the interesting things is um, Singapore is one of the most religiously diverse places in the world with large populations of um, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, right? For a very tiny, you know, place. And a study came out um, a few years ago that said 
you know, nine out of 10 Singaporeans are comfortable living in religious diversity. And then around the same year, uh, a report came out from the United States that said nine out of 10 evangelicals don't like religious diversity or don't want anything to do with their, um, you know, religious neighbor or are, are just uncomfortable with levels of pluralism. I thought, what an interesting world Christianity question, uh, which is the United States, the country with the most Christians in the world and still a major player in world Christianity discourse people are uncomfortable living in religious diversity, whereas Asian Christians very naturally live in religious diversity, have always lived in religious diversity. So as a Westerner, I don't wanna read books from other Westerners about how to live in religious diversity. I wanna read books from Singaporeans. I wanna read books from Asians, Asian Christians, how to live and welcome your neighbor of other religious traditions. So that kind of decentering of Eurocentrism um, still needs to happen as well. But um, I think we, some have lost sight of this reality that Asian Christians live and breathe this kind of pluralism that is still rather quite new for Europeans and North Americans. Right, yeah. Others like to jump in on this topic about the- Yes, I think we to continue the discussion on uh, what Dr. Jinan, what Dr. Chandra Malampalli has mentioned. The future of world Christianity lies in the strengths of how all Christianity is going to survive in the more diversified and plural society like South Asia, the global South. And many of these countries, Christianity is the religion of the minorities, not a dominant religion, unlike the West. So that's why our racist methods and the focus of all Christianity two to three decades down the line is going to be that. So how do we devise and model all Christianity to be a suitable and a thriving religion in the context of you know, many more non-Christian Abrahamic, Abrahamic religions, particularly in the global south. So mm -hmm. that's going to be very challenging and it, is, it has its own, religion has its own challenges to pose. Uh, mm -hmm. Christianity mm -hmm. as well as Christian communities at large. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, um, anybody else? Uh, Dean Hampton, would you like to jump in there? Um, yeah, thanks, Frank. I mean, one, one thing that's going through my mind, I, I think, is um, what uh, I mean. It goes back to you know what I said at the start in my introduction about writing this book that I tried to turn into a book on world Christianity over a period of 150 years and how to organize that and think about it and. It made me think a little bit of um, Tom's comment about Tony Grafton quote, that it's hard to do one thing well, never mind two or three. Um, and I suppose what's going through my mind a little bit is, um, uh, I mean, we've had this dazzling, you know, travel trip around different parts of the world and looking at Christian expressions in um uh, in, in, in different parts of the world, especially um, East and South Asia and, and Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I mean, is it possible, I mean, I grew up studying European British Isles Christianity, which, you know, was more or less country by country. There were French ecclesiastical historians, German ecclesiastical historians. Even within the British Isles, there was uh, Irish historians, Welsh historians, Scottish. I remember writing a book on 
on um, Christian traditions in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, which you know, people thought was a, an ambitious thing to try and do, <laughs> even in that small geographical area. So I think the question I have a little bit is that, is world Christianity going to be simply, um, you know, an amalgamation of um, uh, local geographical studies that only one or two people have the kind of, you know, um, range and scope to bring together in some way? Or is there something like world Christianity where there's going to be um, uh, creative interactions among scholars and around some of the themes that we've talked about tonight, you know, women, um, sexuality, um, <clears throat> emotion, bodies, colonialism, whatever it might happen to be. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think, and the people here know far more about this than I do. This is not my specialism, but my understanding a little bit was that there was this kind of, you know, group of people who were kind of pioneer scholars in, in world Christianity, people like Dana Robert and BU, Lamin Sani in Yale, Andrew Walls in the University of Edinburgh and Aberdeen. Um, and that you know, these were the kind of, uh, um, um, you know, the, the conceptual framers of how to think about this and, and some, you know, very fine books and some very creative articles. And that there was something like you might call world Christianity or that you, or that, that, you know, some kind of generic field like that, that encapsulated the, the, the work of the field going forward. So I, I suppose my question of the people on the panel is that, um, you know, is something like that feasible? I mean, even among, you know, young scholars going forward, is there a sense of kind of um, field and disciplinary um, family spirit almost in what we're trying to do here? Or are we simply a federation of, um, uh, you know, local geographies uh, doing our bit? And it's, it's world Christianity because it's, happening in some different location from um, from where we are now. So that, that seems to me to be a, a big, difficult question to think about. Um, one or two people have tried to answer it tonight by focusing on, I think it was Tom again, talking about like apostasy as a theme. Um, and no doubt there are other kinds of themes we can think of. And I was struck in the Gifford lectures I gave last year, I was um, trying to do a, a kind of world Christianity um, uh, thing around these three words, you know, networks, um, uh, uh, nodes, and nuclei, you know, trying to see what networks are working, where are they, the nodal junction points where something important is happening um, that then, you know, distributes itself in different parts of the world. And then you play eye, what are the kind of inner ingredients or DNA structure or atomic molecules of certain religious traditions that are now allow them to spread beyond national geographical boundaries? So that's a long rambling question, but I think you get the picture of what I'm trying to say. And I'd love to hear, you know, the comments of some of our panelists um, on that. You know, on that issue about how they see the next decade, for example, um, in, in relation to that question. 
Excellent, thank you. Whoever would like to take it up first, we have a good amount of time. Heather seems to be ready. Sure, yeah, no, this is a, uh, I, I love talking about this actually. It's a bit of an obsession of mine. Um, my answer is just that I, I hope so. Um, I really do hope so. And I really think there's the opportunity to do so. Um, I already think that you're seeing a lot of signals that um, world Christianity uh, has sort of populated a, a number of kind of case studies um, historically and is moving more towards uh, studies of interaction and movement and processes, right, that make Christianity appear global and networks and things like this. So, so thinking across spaces and comparatively is something that's already being done. Um, something that I hope um, is also done, um, maybe with the inclusion of more social scientists, which have been kind of underrepresented, I would say, in this conversation, um, is thinking very, thinking very deliberately about um, the idea of global Christianity and world Christianity, um, and maybe adopting some tools, some theories and methods from the social sciences as they've been thinking about how do we think about um, how difference is imagined and emplaced around the world. So really pointing to the fact that like the global is an imaginary, right? And at a certain degree, um, if we, you know, think about Catholicism, you know, in the name Catholic, right? There's a universality to it. So to even call, even refer to global Christianity in a sense is a bit kind of at, at odds, like when has Christianity never not been global, right? So I would, I would really hope that going forward, we can kind of draw on some of these theories from things like anthropology or cultural geography or sociology to think critically about um, when did Christianity become envisioned as somehow not global? What are the things that make us view Christianity and think about its spatiality as being more global? And what are different kinds of imaginaries about um, religious community and movement and dynamics um, that might move us forward? And I think it's at that level, thinking about themes and connections and, and spatiality, that I think uh, some of this could also happen, which, which doesn't take away from the culturally particular cases, which are also quite valuable, of course. Thanks, Helen. I was going to jump in if I could here and, and say that, you know, it strikes me that, you know, if you're doing early modern Catholicism today, it is global Catholicism. Um, you know, one wouldn't really be able to talk about Catholic Italy anymore, uh, as, as maybe ecclesiastical history historians of the past did, you know, nation by nation, um, it, it just wouldn't really be accepted as, as an option. Uh, at the same time, though, it actually strikes me that it might be an interesting time <laughs> in some ways to revert to that model if we're thinking about the world today and, you know, really actually rise of nationalism post-COVID with China ascendant, you know, Russia and, and our world closing in some ways and not being maybe as global as it looked three years ago. So, you know, again, it might be a way of looking at opposite things, uh, you know, that, that sparks some interest. But I also think that you've raised an interesting methodological question. Um, you know, obvious, you know, I, I'm an early modernist and, um, you know, the subaltern voices is, is very hard to retrieve, uh, you know, in the early modern period. That doesn't mean it can't be done or shouldn't be done, um, but 
you know, it does raise a serious methodological question, how are you going to do it? And I'm just noting that the most recent issue of uh, the Journal of Early Modern History was about global mic micro history of the local and the global. And it was all about doing this, you know, sort of comparative thing of taking small stories and seeing, you know, how they emerge in global trends and themes. And, uh, you know, thinking then about what, you know, what that means is, as you're, well, defining, if that's what you want to say, what world Christianity or, or Catholicism is. Mm -hmm. I have a, a little additional question, Frank, if, if I may. Um, um, I mean, when I was setting out on some of these interesting questions in, in European uh, Christians, reminded of this, at the conference we had on Friday, you know, celebrating the work of Charles Long and how to think about um, African and African-American uh, uh, Christianity. Um, and um, I, I remember the excitement that we all had then of moving away from, you know, Christendom, establishmentarian, socially elite Christianity to what we call popular religion or unofficial religion or lived religion here at Harvard or, Whatever word or phrase you used, it was really um, religion from below. What, what does it look like outside, you know, uh, cultured elites and, 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 and denominational structures and so on? So the question I have a little bit is that um, can some of those um, techniques of investigation and theories and models of reconstruction play out in a wider geographical area? Or is that simply a kind of recipe for another form of Euro-American imperialism and colonialism? Um, you see what I'm getting at? In other words, is it best almost to avoid all of that scholarship and to say, well, you know, a bunch of Europeans did that 20, 30 years ago, and, it, you know, it was, the Keith Thomases and John Bosses of this world, interesting stuff, but, you know, it's not going to help us. Mm. Uh, and is it better to think that way, you know, that it's better to start uh, with, you know, very deep, either ethnographic or culturally embedded um, histories, anthropologies, ethnographies, in particular places in Africa or in South Asia or East Asia? Or is there any conversation to be had with that kind of um, scholarship that um, some of us were raised in a while ago and, and had some um, productive results. So I'm, I'm kind of interested there. I mean, to, to what extent would be using that scholarship itself a piece of insensitive colonial appropriation that's best avoided? David, I would add to that. I noticed I've been looking at the already at the program for the AAR meeting in San Antonio in a few months. And one of the interesting proposals that may be a panel for the Hindu Christian Studies group is to try to imagine, reimagine the conversations and ways of talking about Hindus and Christians by using indigenous terminology of the Hindu tradition. So thinking in Sanskrit, thinking in Bengali or Tamil, and trying to generate out of those knowledge systems and intellectual structures, a way of talking about Christianity, instead of always using English language 
and discourses from the West. And it seems to be maybe there's something related to what you're saying is yeah. um, destabilizing it by saying, well, if we turn the whole thing around and looked at it in terms of other vocabularies, it could be very productive for us. So, but comments from anybody on the on the panel? We'd like to then open it up for everybody who's been patiently listening in. But on David's question, any any thoughts from anybody? Um, I was going to take a, I didn't even go, I'll just make a really quick jump, which is to say this is very much the question of Jesuit missionaries and the point of accommodatio and deus versus, I mean, the question of language is is really, I mean, it's at the root of, of you know, yeah. this effort. And what does translation mean and how can you, is translating just taking the same old concepts and just importing them into a new language or does it, how does it change things when you begin to think in an Asian or African language, let's say. I, I, I think, and you uh, you brought up Charles Long, uh, I think using Long is a helpful way to, uh, to think about the ways in which all of those sources you mentioned might be part of the act of signifying. And if you wrestle with if you're constantly wrestling with how something may or may not be signifying in world Christianity, you also stumble across all the many ways in which counter signification happens. Uh, and, um, and so I, I think Long actually is an underutilized resource in world Christianity. I think he offers so, so much uh, in these conversations uh, because of his ability to toggle back and forth between uh, you know, um, places uh, around the world and also the, the American experience. Uh, so I, I think uh, beyond just signifying and counter-signifying, but especially signifying and counter-signifying, Long offers us a lot of tools to evaluate uh, the questions that you're mentioning. Thank you for everyone who's been here, especially Kami being up um, very late at night. Um, we appreciate that. Uh, generosity in particular, but wonderful conversation. And again, I just close by adding to the Dean's uh, comment, thanking the, the Young family for their generosity in making all of this possible. And we've had wonderful conversations last year, this year, and I think we'll look forward to more in the future. So with that, unless there's any further comment from the Dean or others, I just say thank you and good night to everyone. Sponsors, Harvard Divinity School, Office of Academic Affairs, Yang Visiting Scholars, and World Christianity Program. Copyright 2023, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.